Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to continue uh, with verse 4. We, we did the first three verses last week. Um, so if you have a Bible or a tablet or something that you can follow along, it's going to be easier for you to understand some of this. I do make a lot of slides, but I can't possibly put up uh, the scripture at the same time as the point and that type of thing. So it's important for you to use your Bibles. They're important tools for us to be able to follow along with what the Spirit has to say to us this morning. Yeah, we're talking about the difference really between being a spectator and being a team player, a participant on that team. And I'm going to read the passage this morning, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us together to grasp what he would have us learn from this uh, challenging passage uh, that's before us today. So uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 4, and I'm going to read down through verse 12. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the, whole, the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now land that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though I speak like this, dear friends, We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. You see, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have loved his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end and in order order to uh, to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Let's pray. God, your word is living and active. Hebrews has taught us. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it, It is able to penetrate to the very core of who we are in our soul and our spirit. So God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work as we take some time to look at this passage together. Be our teacher. Be our guide. Be our comforter. Be our helper. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the sword of your spirit, the word of God. May it work in our lives now to produce good fruit, a crop of fruit, and your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So if you ask most Bible-believing Christians uh, what the book of Hebrews is actually about, they would say it's about faith, right? That's the one thing that people grasp from this very confusing, very sort of different message, different than many of the other gospel presentations, the other gospel books, the other epistles. Uh, this one was written to those who have a, a Jewish background. I don't know if you could tell, but Steve, one of our worship leaders this morning, he was raised in a Jewish household. So the Seder and all of the, the pieces that he sees uh, through that lens of his childhood um, are fulfilled in Christ. And it's a beautiful thing when you, when you hear from, uh, from someone who was raised in that background. But often to our ears, it sounds confusing. It's like, well, well what is that? What is a Seder? What is that cup for? What is this all about? Um, so Hebrews is a challenge to us. It's actually, as we said earlier in this series, it's one of the least studied books in the New Testament because it challenges our understanding um, because our perspective as modern uh, Christians is very different than the group that the preacher here was preaching to. But God wanted it for us. He restored it for us. He, get, he gave it to us uh, and has kept it all these years in our Bible so that we can be challenged to grow by it. So I hope you're growing in your faith. Now, as we look at what faith is, if, if most people say, well, the book of Hebrews is about faith, faith is actually just defined as a complete trust and confidence in someone or something. If you have faith in something, it means you, you completely trust it. So what does it mean to have faith in God? We're going to cover this first because as we go through, we're going to see that there's two types of people here, some who are believing and who have faith and some who do not. So to have faith in God, you really have to make three decisions, right? You have to make three decisions. First of all, you have to decide to hear God's word. Now, I know it seems funny to say you have to decide to hear because if there's a noise, you hear it sort of naturally. But I'm talking about in your heart, in your, in your soul, that you decide to, to listen intently, to pay attention to God's word. Because you can hear it. I just read that passage. Some of you may have heard me read it. Some of you may have been checking your emails, right? You still heard it audibly with your, with your physical ear, but you may not have heard it with your hearts. That's why we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to be at work, right? So number one, you, you have to decide. You have to make a decision. I want to hear God's word. I, wanna, I want it to penetrate past my, my ears, my eardrums, and into my brain and past that and down into my heart so that it can make a difference. The second thing you have to do is once you hear it, you have to believe it. Scripture continues and encourages us to believe in God, to believe his prophets, to believe what Jesus has said. And then lastly, as proof in many ways that you do hear God in his word, that you do believe that his word is true, then you must act on it. You must put it into action. And whatever, whatever that means for your personal application or for how God is working in your life, but, but until you have actually put it into action, you haven't completed the faith that's necessary to become a true devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, a participant in the gospel. You may be a spectator. You may have heard it. You may have seen other people living it. But until you put these three things into action, you're not participating in the gospel. It has yet to penetrate 
and to change your life. You know, often as you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus sort of challenging his disciples and asking them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And it's often when they're afraid, when they're in the boat in the, in the middle of an ocean and the waves are crashing and they think they're going to drown, you know, and he calms the storm and then he looks at them and says, where is your faith? Don't you believe So this is really a question that I want the Spirit to stir up in us. He's been stirring it up in me for a couple weeks now as I've studied this passage. You see, all of Scripture, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it urges us to have faith in God, to trust in God, to believe in God, and specifically in what He's done now for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, If we just peek a little bit ahead into Hebrews chapter 11, we have a definition, another word that that, that uses this word impossible. Our verse 4 started with the word impossible. It is impossible. Well, here's another thing that's impossible. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he actually rewards those who earnestly seek him. So two things that are impossible. Our passage here this morning, verse 4 of chapter 6, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened. And if we skip down there, it it tells us what it's impossible for. And here it tells us it's impossible for us to please God if we don't have faith in God, if we don't believe in him. So this morning, I hope this message challenges us to make sure that we are believing fully participating by faith in the life that God has given us through his precious son. So in in, in verse four, we've stumbled across this word impossible. Impossible is one of those words that, you know, it's not always clear um, who it's impossible for. We know that nothing's impossible with God, right? So it must be impossible uh, in our realm as far as we're concerned. So these words must be read in their context or we fall into all kinds of misunderstandings. And misunderstandings cause conflict either internally or externally when we misunderstand. Remember, context is everything when it comes to scripture. You cannot just pull words willy-nilly out and, make, and say, well, that's God's word. They are written within context. This one's within a sermon, which was, was addressing a particular congregation of people of Hebrew descent. So we know the context so far as to to what's impossible here, where this is fitting in. When we hear words as striking as the word impossible, in their entire context, it helps us, helps us to gather some understanding as to what God would say to us with these words. So what is the preacher saying is impossible? Well, it starts in verse four, with it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. But then there's this comma, right? The comma comes after the word enlightened, and then he goes on to sort of describe what it means to be enlightened. And then in verse 6, when he gets to verse 6, we get the rest of the answer to what is actually impossible. It's impossible to restore again to repentance. Restore again to repentance those who have fallen away. Now, out of context, without chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 
this chapter 6 almost sounds like we're all doomed. We're all doomed because I have come to Christ, but often I have fallen away from obeying him completely, right? You like me, we all, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all like sheep, we, we wander away at times. We're distracted by and, 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 and drawn into things that are not of God. And so we have to go through a process, right? And that process is called repentance. We, we, we wake up, we, we come to our senses like, like the prodigal son in the pig pen. We come to our senses and we say, wait a minute, this is not the life that, that I could have. I need to repent of these sins and I need to go back to my father, right? So that process of repentance, Jesus helped us to see it in the, in the prodigal son story, what it's actually like. This is saying it's impossible to bring to repentance. We've got to get our bearings here. So to get our bearings, we need to go back and listen to the preacher of Hebrews because this, this guy is preaching this message to his church. By now, he's probably been preaching for only about 20 minutes, much shorter than I do usually, right? He's preaching for about 20 minutes when he comes to this point. It's in the middle of that warning that started in chapter 5. But it's continuing now here in our passage this morning. Now, the preacher has already been talking at length about faith, about belief, and about unbelief. If you go back, starting in, we'll look at just uh, chapter 3, right? Starting in chapter 3, he begins to warn his congregation against unbelief or not trusting fully in God. Specifically in Jesus as God's provision for us. He declares in chapter 3, verse 11, he's quoting from Old Testament a passage where he says, they shall never enter my rest. Now, do you remember who they are? Let's go back to the beginning of this book. Who, is, who are they that will never enter the rest? The nation of Israel. Some, some of the, 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 the people of God who were brought through the exodus, through the miracles that finally humbled Pharaoh enough to let them go, to let his people go, and then they left, and they went out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, and he gave the law. They saw miracle after miracle, the parting of the Red Sea. They saw all the plagues. They were not touched by any of them. They were protected under God's care. They were thirsty, and so he provided water from a rock, enough water for a million people to drink, so not, not a little tri- trickle, a river for them to drink and to feed their, to, to, to help their animals to drink as well. So this is a, these are big miracles. They ran out of food. What did he provide from heaven? Every day. Manna. Manna. Every day but one. Every day. They tasted something like honey. Honey bread from, from heaven, right? So they participated in the miracles, by seeing them, by observing them, they participated by even eating the manna and drinking the water that God provided. And yet, when they came to the promised land, when they came to the river Jordan, and they were told by God to cross over that he was going to give them this land, this was their promised land, 
What did they do? They fell back into unbelief. Even though he had done all these miracles for them, they fell back into unbelief. So much so that they, he said, go. And they said, well, wait, um, we got a better plan. Um, how about we get 12 people and they go and look and see if it's okay. So they came up with their plan to see if it was safe. And 10 of the 12 came back saying, it's not safe. Don't do it. Don't go. They will crush us. They're like giants and we're like grasshoppers, right? Like they just had this terrible report and the the people listened. They said, oh, no, 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 we can't go. We can't go. We're not going to go in. Even though God said, I will provide. I will protect. I have already shown you my power. What is the problem, people? The problem was unbelief. Lack of faith in a God who had already shown them his power more than any of us have ever seen, shown them his miracles. And yet they still could not believe that stepping over into that promised land, that God would do more miracles, that God would clear their enemies, that God would give them this land and bless them in it, even though that's what his promise was. So the problem was unbelief. Let's look at some of the verses here in in, in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse uh, 12, he says, See to it that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. That's his description of what the nation of Israel did, bar, bar a few people. They, they, they got a sinful heart, which he describes as an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In in chapter 3, verse 19, it says, they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So he's just stating a fact. They will never enter my rest because they will not believe in me. They will not put their faith in me. They will not put their complete trust, their complete confidence in me. They are unbelievers In chapter 4, verse 2, we and they, so now he's talking to both groups, we, the congregation that the the Hebrew preacher is preaching to, we, we could say we here this morning, right? And they, the, the Old Testament nation of Israel, we and they, we had the gospel preached to us, but the message that they heard, which was Similar, the same, God is your provider, God is your protector, God will take care of you. The message that they heard was of no value to them. Why? And let's read this. Let's read the the bold at the bottom there. Why? Because they did not combine it with faith. You can hear the message It can be displayed for you in great miracles, in great provision. And you can still not combine that with faith or trust, complete confidence in God. And you'll miss out. It's of no value to you. This is part of the warning that we hear here this morning and that they have heard and that Christians throughout history have heard. Don't be like that. He says, don't be like them. Don't just watch as a spectator. 
Don't just watch God do his miracles. Don't just listen from afar to the gospel. Let it in. Participate in it. Invite him in. In, in, Allow him into your soul, into your spirit in such a way that you're changed, that you're transformed, that you're born again of the spirit. Because if you don't, you cannot enter God's rest. It is impossible, impossible, because you refuse to believe. Now, we know God's heart. God's heart is that none would perish, but all would come to repentance and into new life through Jesus Christ. We know his desire is for everyone to hear the good news and to respond joyfully by accepting it. But we also know that because of the depths of sin, because of the the destruction of sin on us, and because of the stubbornness of our hearts, many will refuse the good news. They will refuse the offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It doesn't make sense to those of us who have been born again But we were once there too. We're never to to, to sort of puff ourselves up. We were also like that. Paul goes on to list what we were like. It's a horrible, horrible list. And we were on that list. Our sins were on that list. But somehow, through faith, through the gift of faith, as the Spirit allowed us to receive faith, somehow we were able to make the decision to hear God's word, to believe it completely, to put our confidence in it, and then to act on it. And to become born again of the Spirit. It's a mystery, but it's also a miracle that God does for us. I look at my notes here, Andrea. I got off a little bit. (laughs) Now, listen, before we go pronouncing sentence on ourselves or some kind of sentence on other people, the preacher lists some very specific things about this gracious gift from God. He lists these in in, in verses four and five. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Those are miracles, signs and wonders. But I want you to pay attention to something, not that other voice. Pay attention to something. He has switched personal pronouns here. Right? So he's not necessarily talking to you, his congregation. He's talking about them. How do we know this? Because we can see that he switched pronouns from the first and second personal pronouns, we and you and us, right? Talking about us, to those who and they, right? Third person. Those who and they. Because he's not accusing his church members of falling away. He's warning them not to, but he's not accusing them of that. In fact, look at his encouragement in verses 9 through 12. I'm going to read them again. Even though we speak like this, like, like what? Like it's impossible to be restored. It's impossible to come back. Even though we speak this way, we're confident of better things in your case, right? He's back to the first person. Your case Things that accompany salvation. 
So these, this description of, of tasting the heavenly gift, of sharing in the Holy Spirit, or tasting the goodness of God's word, those also accompany salvation, but there must be some qualifying difference between. And all we need to do is go back in context to realize the qualifying difference is faith. They have to be combined with faith. When you hear the word of God, or taste it, as, as the author says here, as you taste it, combine it with faith, right? You have to take faith and, and put it into what you're hearing, what you're tasting, what you're observing, what you're seeing. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. The good thing is that here in verses 9 through 12, he says, you know, I'm not talking about you. I'm confident because you're, you're, you're a better case study here because you are already in salvation. You're already in this place of faith. And then he says, because you're there, God won't overlook your work or your love that you've shown. This encouragement is directly connected with the warning, right? He's warned them. This is the third warning in the book of Hebrews. There's more coming. He's warning them to stay alert, to stay close to Christ, to don't drift away. Chapter three said, you know, don't drift. Stay, stay here, stay close. He's warned them, but he's also encouraged them. This encouragement with a warning is meant to motivate us as believers, his congregation as believers, to persevere in faith, especially when things get hard. We have to persevere and be patient to inherit the promise. Chapter 12, I mean, verse 12 finishes with. So how do we identify or, or, or sort of rectify verse four? Those who have been enlightened seem to be those, and this is my opinion, there's, there's plenty of centuries of people who may disagree with me. These seem to be those who have been exposed to the people of God, the message of God, some of the, the light of God, but have yet to put all of their faith in Christ. They probably have relationships with Christians, with Christian organizations, with Christian churches. They may even attend church meetings or worship on a Sunday morning. They may hear the gospel being preached to them again and again and explained to them again and again, but they still refuse, as the Israelites did, to go in. They can't do it. They don't trust it. Something in them won't let them. You know, and there's this, this is struggle. There's this place. So this list of things that they've tasted suggests that these people who have fallen away, they've participated, but only as spectators. They've tasted, but maybe not eaten the whole thing. Maybe not swallowed, right? You can taste something. You can stick your finger in, you know, is this sugar or salt? Do you ever get those two confused at your house, those two containers? Sugar looks just like salt. And how do you figure it out? You lick your finger and you go, oh yeah, that's the sugar, right? So they've tasted, but they're not gobbling down a pound of sugar, right? They haven't actually participated. So my question is, is it possible? Is it possible that they have seen and heard the gospel, but not participated fully in the new birth by the Holy Spirit, 
because they did not combine it with faith. That's really the question. Theologians have argued about this question. You guys might want to argue about this question. I don't, but, but you might want to. Uh, because, because where's the line? I think only God knows where the line is, right? I, I think he's the only one that actually can see that line. We would love to. Or wouldn't, it, wouldn't we feel good if we could? We feel good about ourselves because we make sure we were over the line. But we'd also feel good by saying, well, he's not and she didn't. And I'm sure that one isn't. You know, we, we love that. It's, it's a terrible, sinful characteristic that we have. It's called judgment. Jesus is the only judge. He's the only one who ultimately knows. So church attendance does not make you a Christian. In case you thought it did, it does not. It's a good thing. Especially in times of COVID, right? I believe that these who have fallen away, have gotten close. They've been able to observe. They've been able to taste even. But they have never made that decision, those three decisions that make up that one most important decision to trust, to put all of their confidence in Jesus Christ, God's provision for us. And so the Holy Spirit has not set up residence in their hearts. They know some things about Christianity. They've maybe sung some songs. They've maybe gone to camp. Their parents sent them off to Christian camp or something. They may have done a lot of things, but they have not put all of their trust and confidence in Christ. Because what is faith? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And the assurance of what we do not see. We have to trust that the truth being told to us in Scripture by the Holy Spirit, by the church, by Christian witnesses, we have to trust that that is solid. And we can bet our lives on it. We can commit our lives to that. Now, I want to tell you a story. It's a sad tale about two different evangelists. The late Billy Graham and the late Charles Templeton. They were both evangelists who rose to popularity in the 40s and 50s and 60s, right? They had big crusades in sports coliseums. Some of you may have been to their crusades, Early in their career, they were very close friends. They worked closely together, sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel wherever they went, in Canada, in the United States, and eventually overseas. We know a lot about Billy Graham, but not so much about Charles Templeton. Many have said that Templeton was actually the one that everyone thought was going to reach the world with the gospel. He actually had more charisma than Billy did. However, sadly, Templeton ended up leaving the Christian faith. Eventually, he declared himself an atheist. In 1982, though he was an atheist at the time, in 82, he said this of Billy Graham. There's no feigning, which is, you know, a fancy word for pretending, right? There's no, there's no hypocrisy in Billy. Billy believes what he believes with an invincible 
innocence. He is the only mass evangelist I would ever trust. He knew that Billy believed it with every core of his being. But he himself could not. There were certain questions that that bothered him, certain doubts that continued to, to, to roll around inside of him, and eventually those things ate his faith alive. Templeton died in 2001 at the age of 86, shortly after he wrote what some consider to be one of the most heartbreaking books ever published. The book's entitled Farewell to God. What's up with this? How is this even possible? I don't know how to rectify it in my little baby mind, right? God knows, God understands, God knew it was going to happen, right? He's sovereign. He understands how this, these things take place in men's hearts. In the Gospel of John, it says the light came into the world, but men loved the darkness. They withdrew from the light. Well, by reading the scriptures, we know that God, who is sovereign, he grants repentance even to his enemies, even to rebels. For example... The apostle Paul used to be called Saul, who was an enemy of Christianity, right? God granted him grace and repentance. We know that Jonah was sent to an evil city called Nineveh. Nineveh was a terrible place. And God sent Jonah to bring a message of repentance. And they repented. God, in his grace and goodness, overlooked their sin. So we know that God is sovereign, but we also know something else about God, and it's the way that he created us to be free will agents, right? That we have some free will, we're not robots, and that God in his sovereignty, he will not intervene, even though he could, he will not intervene to turn someone around who by their own free will refuses to listen to the gospel message refuses to bow their knees before God, before Christ, and admit, yes, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ alone. He knows that some closely observe Jesus, but they don't quite step over the line. They don't actually become full participants in the grace of God. They actually walk away or fall away, whatever word you want to use, and reject God's greatest gift. The gospel's interesting. In the Old Testament, the grace of God, the goodness of God, was often by the prophets uh, given the imagery of, of rain, right? So if we look at verses 7 and 8 in our passage today, we got the same thing. All of a sudden, he's talking about rain, Verse 7, he says, land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receive the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles, so it's getting the same rain, but for some reason it produces thorns and thistles is in danger of being cursed and in the end being burned. Burned. 
I often have to turn to the Gospels because books like Hebrews can be confusing to my little brain. In the Gospels, I remember Jesus telling a, a, a parable. It's the parable of the sower. It's in, it's in Matthew chapter 13. It says, Jesus went and sat by a lake and such a crowd, a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat. And then he told this parable. Actually, he told several, but he told this one first. The farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some of the seed fell along a path. A path is usually hard soil. We know that, right? And so the seed sat on the top of the hard soil and the birds came and they ate it all up. But some of the seed, it fell in rocky places where there wasn't much soil. It sprang up quickly, but when the sun came out, because the soil was shallow, it withered away because there was no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seeds fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what had been sown with that one single seed. And then Jesus simply says, he who has ears, let him hear. Interesting. Jesus knows that our hearts, some are soil that's ready to receive and to grow, and others are hard and, and, and cannot absorb the gospel because of the calluses and the hardness, that, the resistance that is in man's soul. He talks later on about the, the weeds and the wheat growing up together. And it says angels came and said, oh, should we, should we pull out the, the weeds? And he says, no, no, leave the weeds there so they can grow up together. And at the end, at the harvest time, we'll just separate them off. And the, the weeds will all be burned and the wheat will all be harvested. Jesus uses this analogy of, of farmland and crops and soil and seed and harvesting again and again. Because it made a lot of sense to them as farmers. And it's easy for us to observe if we look around and, and look at nature. One problem I want to, to resolve, which is arrogant, I guess, on my part, but I think it might be helpful, where it, where it says in, 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 this, in this chapter th that these people, they shared in the Holy Spirit. The Greek word there actually means they were companions with him. They walked, they walked alongside. It's a little different than being temples of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit resides in you, right? So these little, these little things help me to process through, and I hope that they are helpful for you. It's important for us to, to always remember that Jesus, by the Spirit, spoke through his own voice, but then also through the voice of the prophets. And he warned us as well. Some people probably don't like Hebrews because in the book of Hebrews we get these warnings and they, they make us feel nervous. Well, let me remind you of another parable that Jesus tells. It's in Matthew chapter 7. And it starts in verse 15. I'll just read it quickly. It says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Because do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And then there's these final words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that last judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, didn't we drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is Jesus recorded for us. This is his warning for us to watch out for people who who look like a duck and quack like a duck and walk like a duck, but they're not a duck. And somehow God can tell. And often we cannot. We are responsible for our own soul, our own spirit, And we are to bring it before God again and again in repentance and in humility and continue to ask him to give us life through Jesus, to walk through life with us every day, continuing to pour his life into us. The preacher ends with encouragement, and I want to end with encouragement, but it's also a warning. I can't separate these two things. We can't just get rid of the parts of the Bible that make us nervous we got to read the whole thing. And God, by his spirit, can minister through the whole thing to us. He ends this passage in Hebrews, this warning, again, I'll say it, with encouragement. This is not who you are, right? Even though I speak like this, you're my friends. And I'm confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany your salvation. But hold on, don't get lazy. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. We're going to go in in probably several weeks by the time we get to it, but Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter, right? It's It's the hall of fame of faith. And we're going to get to see in the lives of people, some who we know because they're known in scripture and some who we will only know when we meet them in heaven. But I want you to to grasp the beauty of a warning with an encouragement. I'm going to warn you, but I know you're going to do well. I'm going to warn you, but I know you've got this. You've got this. Just put your faith, all of your faith in Christ. Don't just say you believe him, but hold back. Give it all. Lay it down. Whatever doubts you have, he can handle it. He is able to walk you through this, to complete the work that he began. So at some point in our lives, we have to decide to put all of our faith in God. We have to believe that he is real. We have to believe that the Bible is trustworthy. 
You have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And people, that takes faith. That takes faith. Even just a little mustard seed of it. But it'll grow as you continue to draw close to God. The question for us this morning, and only you can answer it, are you a spectator or are you a participant in faith? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. If you find yourself in the spectator category, I encourage you, walk by faith. Go deeper. Get more and more and more closer and closer and closer to God through his word, through others who know him, so that you can cross over that line and become a participant in the gospel. We have just come through Easter and I often think about those two thieves on the cross. It was the last moments of their life, right? One, one of those thieves, he expressed faith in Jesus. But the other one continued to hurl insults at him. I don't know why. I'd love to interview those two guys. Why the different response? God knows. I don't have the privilege of knowing that. I only have myself. You only have yourself. People who don't put their faith in Jesus will never enter God's rest. They just can't. Jesus is the only way. God has made it that way. And that sounds hard and harsh, but it's true. The gospel testifies to it. But we're confident of better things in your case. Those of you who I know personally, I see your faith. I see your love for one another. I see the way you serve, the way you give of yourselves. Just as he says here in this passage, God's not going to overlook that. But ultimately, it comes down to faith. Faith and action from that faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It's sometimes such a challenge. We wrestle with it, but we've got your spirit to help us. Give us the strength of your spirit and the wisdom of your spirit to discern where we are today in relationship with Christ. Are we just spectators? We just sort of on the sidelines, just watching. Or have we stepped into the participation with your Holy Spirit in the life of Christ? God, I pray for every person who can hear my voice, that they would hear the voice of Jesus. That they would know. They would know where they stand with him. If there's any doubt, Lord, I pray that you would draw them into a place of faith. For those who already have faith, may they just grow more deeply into it. May they express it more through their lives, through their actions, through their words, through the way that they love others. God, you are a great God. You are at work even now in our midst, bringing faith and life to your people who you love. So bless us now as we go from this place 
Give us time to think and process and pray and read this through. And by your spirit, help us to walk by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.